Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. So hopefully, you know, those disease management areas where they started within a deer farm that over time, because we do a lot of surveillance and we do a lot of testing, hopefully those disease issues have been contained and those disease management areas will go away. So that's what I'm hopeful with some of those areas. We Welcome to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 144. It's that state of the PGC time of year. Happy New Year, everyone, and I hope you had an enjoyable holiday season. This week, I'm going to be talking with a returning guest, Brian Burhands. Brian is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Game Commission, and he brings news for the new year. Topics include why RAWA is such an important bill for state agencies, how the rough grouse are doing in the state, how the PGC made a weather issue right concerning pheasants, and updates on CWD. Brian's also going to provide updates on the antlerless license changes, insights into the revamped bear seasons, and why PA is in dire need for more hunter-trapper education instructors. I really want to make sure that you stay tuned for the end of the episode for a special announcement about a new PGC program, air quotes. Welcome back everyone. And uh, on the line today for the second time is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Game Commission, Brian Burhands. Brian, how are you doing today? Man, it couldn't be better. And I'll come back and chat with you on a podcast any day. Um, I'm be, be careful saying that. I'm going to hold you to it. Uh, I'm, we talked at the Elk Expo earlier this year uh, when I was there and you were there uh, about trying to do sort of like a, a state of the game commission and sort of seeing where things are. And um, that's what we're going to be doing today. And what I want to start out with is the fact that the game commission, everyone, a lot of people think it's all about hunters. It's all about hunter, you know, hunting game animals, you know, species that we have. But really, the Game Commission is responsible for 480 species in Pennsylvania. Something that would really help the Game Commission is if Congress would pass the Recovering Americans Wildlife Act, which I've talked about on the podcast before. Unfortunately, it looks like it's not going to pass this session. Um, how would Rawa, as uh, people that talk about a lot call it, how would the passing of RAWA help the Game Commission? Well, the, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act would help in so many ways. So if you, you're correct. The, the Pennsylvania Game Commission is actually in charge of managing all the wild birds and wild mammals in the state of Pennsylvania. It's over 480 different species. Um, that's our charge. Now, of course, we have so much direct linkage to our hunters because hunting so popular in, in uh, Pennsylvania, but that doesn't lessen the importance of all the wildlife species in Pennsylvania. And it was devastating news. It was devastating for conservation. It was actually devastating for business. It was devastating for the economy not to have raw wild passed. It basically, it was not put into the omnibus uh, package, um, even though there's bipartisan support for the policy behind it. But yeah, let's face it, things in Washington, D.C. are very complicated and there's a lot of competing interests uh, in, you know, we have a lot of challenges in the country right now, but it was devastating to see that uh, RAWA was not included in the omnibus package because, you know, what it means to not only wildlife, but again, and this is a lot of people to understand, if we can keep species common, keep them off species, a list such as species of greatest conservation need or threatened and endangered, you know, those are all things that hang up people when they're trying to run businesses and do construction projects and things like that. Those are the things that, you know, we want to get healthy populations and keep common species common. So it was really devastating to see that 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 legislation or that bill was not passed. But 
all's not lost. Uh, again, there is tremendous, there's really almost universal support for the concept behind uh, Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And this is nothing new. You know, I've been working, it's come under different names over the past decades, and I've been working with this bill basically my whole career. We've been trying to get this to come to fruition where Every state has what's called a state or a wildlife action plan, and the wildlife action plan deals with species of greatest conservation need, threatened and endangered uh, species, and it's basically a roadmap of how the agency is going to recover these species. So some species are very cryptic. Uh, they're very hard to find, and we just lack information to take them off the list and justify, no, hey, these are actually healthy, or hey, these are actually in trouble, and here's what we need to do that, and then you take action required to recover the species. So it's not a, hey – you know, it's in trouble. We'll just watch where it goes. No, it's an actual active roadmap to how do we recover these species, you know, because again, Pennsylvania, if you look at wildlife, you know, we are the trustee for the wildlife resource, but the, the citizens of Pennsylvania are the benefactors. In other words, the, the wildlife belong to the people. And just as much as, you know, hunters uh, are important to the Pennsylvania Game Commission to help us do our wildlife management, all citizens of Pennsylvania, especially those who care about and are passionate about wildlife, you know, this is – they have a voice you know, with the Pennsylvania Game Commission, which is why we're structured the way we're structured. Um, but I really appreciate you recognizing that – it's more than just hunting. Hunting is very important. And, you know, a lot of us, the game commission, we hunt, we're passionate about hunting. We're concerned about the future, but we're passionate about all wildlife because uh, that's what makes Pennsylvania what it is. Yeah. You know, and you, when it comes to doing habitat work, um, even though that people may look at some habitat work that the game commission is having done as this is targeted towards uh, turkey or deer uh, or pheasants, Right. Uh, that work still benefits other non-game species as well. The problem is that the funding only goes so far where this bill would give more funding to be able to target those very specific species and do work that is needed for those specific species. Just as, you know, habitat work for a game species will help non-target species, uh, habitat work targeted towards a non-hunted species will also benefit the hunted species as well. So this is some, this is the type of bill that, you know, really the non-hunting public and the hunting public should be able to get behind and really work to try to make sure, you know, call on their congressmen and their state and their senators and say, Hey, we want this passed. This is going to benefit us. Yeah. And, and even to take it a step further, when we're dealing with species of greatest conservation need and threatened and endangered species, you know, we're already as an agency doing a, a lot of habitat work that benefits those species. So you really, when it look at habitat management, you're actually what I call managing plant communities. So for example, if we're looking at early successional habitat, which is you go in there and you cut trees down, you have young growing trees. Well, that's grouse habitat. It's also turkey nesting habitat. It's also golden wing warbler habitat. So you're not really managing for a species and a lot of the habitat management, but where this species specific information comes through is, you know, for example, uh, I say wood rat. Now, when you, I say wood rat, don't think of a rat because they're really not like the Norway rat, which is what we typical think of. Everybody knows what a white-footed mouse is. It's like an oversized white-footed mouse, but it's also a species that's in real trouble for a number of reasons uh, here in Pennsylvania and uh, throughout the northeastern United States. Um, that does take some specific management practices to benefit them that really doesn't benefit anything else other than rattlesnakes in the case of this species, uh, but does take some specific thing. Plus, we're looking at other things that may have to be done, like propagation to enhance uh, population genetic diversity and things like that. It gets very technical for some of these species. You know, you've got the the goshawk in north central Pennsylvania and how it's declined over time and the work it's going to take to do that. And, you know, the, when you look at the economics behind recovering some of these species, as soon as it makes the federal list, the whole world turns upside down. I think it costs for bald eagle recovery, just the plan for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to develop the plan, about $38 million. So if we can keep this at the state level, believe me, we've never written a uh, management plan that costs $38 million or anywhere close. <laughs> but we have the technical experts in the field that are on the ground and actually know how to do this work. So if we can get more more of our folks uh, with the funding they need to get the data, get the information, and actually implement the recovery plans, we can avoid going to that federal level where you're going to spend a lot of money. Uh, you know, you look at the restoration of the bald eagle, hugely successful, 
but because it got to the to the uh, threatened endangered status federally, it was very expensive as well. So, um, you know, the agency has a track record and and of being able to successfully, you know, look at Peregrine Falcon. We just recently delisted those from the state list. It's again an example of the states having the ability to, with the funding, because it it's not cheap. With some of these species, you got to make the investments to get the results that you want. But it does work, and it's a lot cheaper than going where you have to list them uh, in a federal level. Now, to sort of keep on a similar topic, but switch gears a little bit, um, our state bird, the rough grouse, is in. Well, it's not necessarily, it's not endangered. It's not, I don't mm. know that really, it's not on the threatened list. Like we can still actively hunt it. So yes. it, it's, it's doing okay, but it should be doing way better. Right. Um, where are we at with the rough grouse and, and trying to sort of bring that population up? You know, the rough grouse is an example. It's really two storms that have hit at the same time. You've got uh, Pennsylvania as a state, our forests are getting older and rough grouse do not do well in older forests. They need a broken up uh, early succession or young forest because always remember baby trees need hugs too, as well as big trees, uh, but they need that habitat in order for their survival. At the same time, we had um, West Nile virus come in and hit these birds really hard. So you've got two perfect storms that have come together. You know, the rough grouse, you know, they're there. I see them. You know, they're they're not. You know, we still allow hunting, and that gets into some more technical details of why we allow hunting. But there's a reason we don't allow late season hunting. Um, but you know, the they're there. Um, they're holding. Um, you know, we've been you know done, have been doing working on a number of projects. Uh, one of them, and actually other states are using the model that Pennsylvania's developed. We've done some research, especially on the west West Nile side, of looking at areas within our topography so maybe upslope or mid mountain or top mountain where do the mosquitoes that carry west nile virus not very common so if we do habitat management we want to pick sites where west nile virus or the mosquitoes that carry west nile virus are less likely to be so if we focus our habitat oh boom we can put the habitat focus our efforts west nile virus is going to be at a lower level and we can have uh, much better impact on our investment on habitat management the challenge with that is when it comes to habitat management, it takes years. I, if I harvest trees, you know, it's not really going to be good grouse habitat for, for many years until that gets to that layer where they can use that. So this does take time. Uh, you know, I'm not worried about rough grouse blinking out in Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, we all wish it was like it was back prior to when West Nile virus hit. Uh, and, you know, when we had some younger forests and younger forests are tougher because most of Pennsylvania is privately owned and a lot of what our forests, the condition our forests in are really a reality of the markets, you know, timber markets. You know, if there's a high demand for for timber, especially in certain sectors, it tends to promote uh, harvest. So it's it's a real challenge for Pennsylvania. You know, we've implemented the program where we're looking at West Nile virus and where it's at. We've also really heavily invested on even some private uh uh, work with other nonprofits and and you know it's it's kind of all hands on deck to do the best we can to build this back to where it was. Question is, could rough grouse develop some type of uh, immunity or at least resistance to West Nile virus? That would be great. It's not impossible uh, because there's a lot of pressure being put on the population by that. So, but only time will tell. Yeah, and to your point, you know, about doing habitat work and seeing results, uh, you know, there's a game lands close to our cabin property, uh, about a mile down the road that was, um, that had a, a timber harvest oh, 20 years ago. Uh, and all of a sudden, we saw some more grouse sort of start coming, mm -hmm. coming back to that area. Um, but we weren't seeing it seeing we were seeing the numbers on our utilizing our property decline. Uh, and then about 10 years ago, uh, I guess closer to 12, we, along with some of our neighbors, uh, for a total of about 500 acres, did a, a timber harvest, did a select timber cut. Yep. And um, about five years ago, we started seeing grouse start to come back, yeah. uh, you know, on our property, which is just, you know, goes to show that they like that, that, as you said, the smaller trees need hugs too. You know, um, I always like to say the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Uh, that's the same thing when it comes to cutting trees too. The best time to cut a tree is 10 years ago. The second best time is today. We, you know, it, it's the forest can't, can't just be let go. We have to manage them um, just as we do, you know, the game species. Can you talk real quick, just a little bit about what went into the decision to 
eliminate the after Christmas late season yeah. grouse season because I know my dad cut his teeth on grouse hunting. He loved that late season. Um, so what was the reasoning for taking that season out? So when you look at game bird populations, and I'm going to get a little nerdy on you on the biology that's, stuff. That's this why I bring really you in. That's stuff. what we're here for. So there's we 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 categorize mortality or how animals die in two categories. There's compensatory and additive. So compensatory means if I don't harvest this bird, it's going to be harvested in some other way. It's not going to live. So what additive means if is if I didn't shoot that animal, it would survive. So in other words, if I go in there and I shoot it, that's one more that wouldn't have died. So with game bird populations, when you look at the early season, um, not the late season, so early season, they've had everything thrown at them. They've got predation, they've got West Nile virus, uh, they've got everything under the moon that's been thrown at them. And we expect, and it's typical, and this is normal within game bird populations, that a lot of them are going to die no matter what you do. Even if you take away hunting, they're going to come down to a certain level. The key is, is that, okay, that's fine. That's what we call compensatory mortality. If you don't shoot them as a hunter, something else is going to eat them. But after that, that, you know, early winter, late fall goes through, then you get into a place where you could have additive mortality. So that's why hunting was removed in the late season, because at that point in time, those are your survivors. Those are your birds for whatever reason made it that long and we need every breeding bird to make it through that late season into the nesting season so that's the reason the late season was closed down to hunting because of additive mortality or, or mortality that would happen through the gun that otherwise wouldn't have happened as compared to the early season when you got a lot of young dumb birds well you know turkeys are exactly the same thing as well you know there's going to be a lot of more higher mortality rates in the fall when they're young and dumb as to when you move into the winter or late early spring or late winter, you know, your survivors are there. These, these, these birds have figured it out and they've been scared enough. They're spooky enough. They're scared of their own shadow and they're have a more likelihood of making it into the breeding season. Now I noticed you said the word closed and not eliminated for the late season. Uh, right. Does that mean that if we see the population numbers come up, that the late season could be added back in? Oh, not only that, is I got to go get a GSP. Uh, all I have is a turkey dog. So <laughs> if, if when they come back in the late season, I'm getting a GSP. <clears throat> okay, that makes me feel good. Okay, we need to get these birds back so we can <laughs> we can add that back in. Um, all right, so upland hunting, uh, grouse doing okay. Uh, we can still hunt them. They're not as as good as the heyday, right? Like in the 80s, whenever my dad was, was going after them hard. Um, but we still have upland opportunities. And one of those uh, upland opportunities are pheasants. Uh, unfortunately, we don't really have much on the way of wild population of pheasants in Pennsylvania uh, for a whole host of reasons that, again, I've gone over on this podcast before. So go back and, and check the episode with uh, Jared Wicklin of Pheasants Forever, and you'll find out some of the reasons why we don't have uh, wild, m much on the way of a wild pheasant population here in Pennsylvania. So one thing that the Game Commission does is uh, they stock the birds, right? Uh, you, I think now you buy uh, basically like hatchlings, right? You don't buy the eggs, you buy the hatchlings at this point. Yeah, day-old uh, chicks. Day-old yep. chicks, uh, raise them throughout the, the sort of late spring and summer and then release them throughout the season on various game lands. Uh, this year, as I was preparing for the opening day of pheasant season, you know, taking my bird dog out, uh, checking uh, on the website, the interactive map, which is great if you want to see where uh, stocking locations are. It's great to get a good idea of where you might want to go. And um, notice the banner on, on the web page saying that there wouldn't be any stocking in these game lands for the first weekend uh, due to an issue at the Southwest game farm uh, where one of the enclosures collapsed because of an early season snow that yep. really is like never happens that early. Um, can in the press release uh, about that um, it was say, stated that the birds that wouldn't get released that weekend would be put out later in the year. Um, how does that work? If the enclosure collapsed and the birds escaped, like <laughs> how are we putting those birds out? We go buy them. So okay. we went, we went and purchased birds to replace the ones that escaped. And, uh, you know, cause our, our hunters have an expectation that what we said, we're going to stock 
we're going to stock. So we do everything within uh, we can to make sure that we do release those birds. So we went, we purchased them on the market and we released them for the hunters. So, um, this wasn't, um, uh, one of the complaints that, or, or one of the things that I heard from a couple people, um, was that how is this enclosure not like, how can it not stand up to a couple inches of snow? Um, you have a couple different types of enclosures, right? Like you have some that are supposed to last, you know, just a week or two yeah. into the fall. And then you have ones that are made to withstand until the last stocking, which is post Christmas, right? Yeah. Especially if you figure right there before the seasons, when we have the maximum number of birds, so you need those nets. If, you know, if you calculate how much snow weighs, and then the square footage of all those nets, it's tons and tons of snow that typically would never hit that time of year. It was a freak snowstorm that hit uh, before we could know it was coming and it, it took down the nets. And, you know, if it would have held off for a couple of weeks, you know, those, a lot of those birds would have already been released. We wouldn't have needed um, all those large pens to hold those birds. So it was just unlucky, bad timing of old man winter being a pain in the butt as he always is yeah I, <laughs> that that was uh that was disappointing to see in the moment um uh you know since that game farm's right there on the way to camp um i actually hunted close to there with the game lands and the amount of birds like everywhere just running everywhere were crazy um but you know when you sit back and you think about it you know as you mentioned not every enclosure is going to be built for winter because most of those enclosures would be empty by the time typical snowfall would come so that makes sense uh i have to ask uh because it's you know a big issue in not just pennsylvania but for a lot of states here in the united states is cwd um it's something that is still present in pennsylvania will still be present for the um, unfortunately probably foreseeable future in pennsylvania so where are we at with cwd um what uh, you know what kind of things are we uh, is the game commission doing to try to contain it as best as possible all we can do with cwd is manage it slow the spread and try to decrease the prevalence of cwd in the whitetail population uh so we have a response plan which you can go onto our website and look at our response plan and that lays out exactly how we're currently managing CWD in the state of Pennsylvania. So uh, it's easy to find. Um, you can email general comments. If you can't find it, they'll send you a link to it. Um, so we lay out exactly what we're doing and how we're doing it. You go on our website, you can find the most latest up-to-date information on uh, the number of deer we're finding that are positive or not detected for CWD. Uh, if you you know, you can also, we have a phone number that people can call for information about CWD, which is 1-833-INFO-CWD. That's 833-INFO-CWD. So they can call that number and ask any question they want. And uh, so CWD is a, you know, it's, fu it's funny as I look back and I've watched the progression of CWD as far as within our hunter population and, you know, what people are saying and what they're thinking we do know that CWD is a serious issue. We do know that CWD is always fatal. Although I hear comments, well, I don't ever find them dead in the woods. Well, if you look around, we have a few coyotes and foxes and raccoons and other scavengers that clean those up. If you look after your gut, your deer and go back two days later, it's pretty much gone. So we have scavengers to pick that up. But we do know um, that CWD is always fatal. We have not detected it in the elk herd, but it is close. Um, you know, we watch every harvested elk is tested for CWD. Uh, you know, and if you look at CWD, what does that mean from a population level standpoint? I don't know if I can adequately answer that question because I don't think we really know. We do have research where we're looking at that and, and asking the question if CWD, what's it going to mean to the whitetail population? But I will say this. If you look at disease on an individual animal level, the amount of suffering and what that animal goes through is horrific. And I think I'm just like every other hunter out there. Although we may harvest wildlife and we may eat wildlife, we do not like seeing wildlife suffer. And what CWD, which is like an Alzheimer's or a CJD uh, that would affect humans, this is what happens in white-tailed deer, and it's not a pretty thing to happen. This is a horrible disease, and it only continues to slowly spread. Now, a lot of our CWD areas or our disease management areas that we established, the majority of them are from deer farms. So a positive deer shows up in a deer farm 
a lot of times the paperwork isn't very good. They don't know where the deer farm may have come from and they end up quarantining. It's just, a, it's just a mess right now. So hopefully, you know, those disease management areas where they started within a deer farm that over time, because we do a lot of surveillance and we do a lot of testing, hopefully those disease issues have been contained and those disease management areas will go away. So that's what I'm hopeful with some of those areas. We saw that happen in disease management area one, which maybe a lot of people don't remember, but it first was identified in a deer farm. We did establish the disease management area, put, which puts certain regulations in place. And after five years without detection of additional C, uh, CWD positive deer, uh, we were able to lift that disease management area up. So my hope is that we're gonna see, and I'm, I'm pretty confident that we will see some other disease management areas go away over time because they were you know, confined to those herds. And, 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 and we'll, you know, we gotta work as hard as we can and take this disease seriously. However, I don't slow down when it comes to hunting in a disease management area. I will get my deer head tested and that's more to, and to help the game commission. Um, you know, if it is sick, I, that's a personal decision. It's not been shown to pass to humans. Personally, I'm not willing to take that chance. Somebody else may eat it. That's fine. That's your choice. Um, but we offer disease testing for CWD at free of charge. You, if you harvest a deer outside of the disease management area and you bring it into one of our head collection bins, we will test it and it won't cost you a dime. So, you know, it's there to as a service for our hunters, because when you look at the battle of CWD and the management of CWD, our hunters are our first line defense in managing this disease. We couldn't do this without our hunters. If we didn't have deer hunters in Pennsylvania, it's be lights out, brothers. This wouldn't nothing we can do about it. Yeah, there's a lot of states like that. Um, it, it's it, I, just think one thing I want to make sure that's clear to everyone Um when you say that CWD was found on some deer farms in Pennsylvania um, and that then created sort of started that whole DMA, you know, buffer zone. Yeah, that's how, that, yeah. Right. Um, the deer farms aren't managed or don't answer to the game commission, right? That's a department of ag. Correct. Yeah. We have no authority over deer farms at all. And this is not pointing fingers. This is just the reality mm -hmm. of why people ask, well, why did a disease management area in Warren County start? Well, there was a farm that was positive. So the first step in the response plan is to set up a disease management area. It's just a matter of fact. That's that's all not pointing fingers or putting right, blame. It right. just is. That is what it is. Right. So, but yeah, the, the Pennsylvania Game Commission, there was a bill passed a number of years ago that took a thought. We used to have it. And the it was basically lobbied for it to be taken away from the Game Commission, and it was given to the Department of Ag. So, um, and those folks at Department of Ag work really hard on this and really do their best to manage something that's really what I call sometimes the impossible disease. So, you know, great agency, Department of Ag to work with. Very, very challenging. They were given this responsibility to deer farms with no additional funding to really deal with it. Um, they've done a yeoman's job in trying to deal with this. It's just CWD is a mess. Not to point fingers at anybody or anything. This is a horrible disease, and it's absolutely very difficult to manage for. So you mentioned uh, the free testing that anyone can drop off ahead in one of the CWD bin collections, um, which you can find those locations on the website. Uh, there's a map with some some great you know, little icons on where those bins are. Uh, what else can hunters do to try to help with reducing the spread of CWD? Well, the, the big thing is if you harvest a deer within a disease management area, and this is by regulation as well, is do not take the high risk parts outside of the disease management area. So the high risk parts are the spleen, uh, the spinal cord, the brain, uh, lymph nodes, um, which a lot of hunters probably don't know what a lymph node is. Um, just take the stuff out that's red and looks like meat, um, but leave the spine and all that other stuff uh, behind, whether you bag it and put it into a, um, a dumpster, which goes to a, uh, a dump, or you put it in one of the bins at the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Now, here's another way you can find out where the disease management areas are, where the drop boxes are for your heads, or where some dumpsters might be for you to put the high-risk parts, is we have a free app. If you just go onto your app and search Pennsylvania Game Commission, if you don't download that app, we have a map that will show the disease management area, where all these locations for head collection bins are. Not only that, it has our seasons and bags. It has every piece of information you can imagine by that the Game Commission produces, plus more. It's kind of like having the digest on your phone, plus a whole, so many more tools. So if you haven't downloaded that app, go into your app store, search Pennsylvania Game Commission, download that app and enjoy. It's a really great, great app. 
Yeah, a little funny story about that app that I have downloaded on my phone. Um, I was actually in the tree stand archery hunting uh, this past year, and I heard in the distance some turkeys chirping around. And I was like, oh, turkey. I, I would, if one comes in range, I will shoot a turkey with my bow. And then I thought, I didn't check to see if turkeys were in season today. So I grabbed, <laughs> grabbed my phone, looked at the app, and, and they have a great section on there. It says, what's in season, right? So I picked the WMU I was hunting uh, in today's in that day's date, and it came up, yeah, turkey are in season. So I was like, okay, so if a turkey walks by, I can shoot it. Uh, we're we're going to try. Uh, so yeah, that app's been great uh, to be able to just sort of check some stuff if the book is not right there and I don't have to go, you know, the full online thing. Everything's right there. Um Let's talk a little bit about something else that, uh, that that's a very modern technology, right? Apps on smartphones, modern technology. Let's talk about something else that has gotten modernized, and that's the antlerless license. Uh, the pink envelope system is now gone. Uh, <laughs> how's that going to work? Well, we're out of the 1950s. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's no doubt it's a challenge. Let's face it. So when you look at like... Uh, was it Ticketron, these, these big ticket sellers or uh, other agencies, you know, you're dealing with a huge amount of data of things being purchased at one time. So there's no doubt it's a challenge. Um, so, you know, as we look at how it's going to line up the spring of commissioners, number one, have to approve exactly how it's going to line up. But kind of the discussion around it is, uh, you know, the license sales and the ability to buy a antlerless license would be on the first day of license sales. So the concept is, you will, you know, license sales open, you go in at eight o'clock in the morning, buy your license, get your antlerless license, walk out the door, you're done. Easy as that. We've got a little bit of work to dare there to work out those details and work that. So I'm not saying that's exactly how it should work, but that's kind of the conceptual framework that is being looked at. So the idea is to make it easy uh, to walk into Walmart, buy your antlerless tag, you know, because you look at the first round, there's a, there's a real fear that, hey, man, I got to show up and get it right away because we're going to run out. Not to say that that isn't possible because, you know, could this new method of being able to not have to be required to mail in the pink envelope, could it increase the rate at which people want to uh, go buy their license? It could. We don't know. Um, if they all come in at one time, it's probably not necessary because if you look at most wildlife management units, I don't think any of them sold out the first round. Uh, even... Uh, 2G, I don't think sold out until the non-resident uh, round came in where they could uh, buy them. So it's not like wildlife management or the antlerless tags sell out instantaneously. Um, so, you know, hopefully people don't rush out there because, you know, at the beginning, I anticipate, you know, it's going to, the computers are going to run a little slow because, you know, we got a lot of deer hunters out there and they want to order them at one time. But we already sell DMAT tags starting at midnight, which you'll never catch me buying a DMAP tag at midnight because I never stay up that late. Um, and it, it can take a little bit of time to get through it. But by morning, there's a lot of them that are sold out and it works pretty good. So, you know, we're going to learn as time goes on uh, and refine it. Just like when you remember when Hunt Fish PA first came out here a couple of years ago, it was rough. And anytime you develop a new system to sell anything, there's always hiccups that you cannot always determine through testing and everything else is going to go. But, you know, I feel confident we're going to get through this and it, the customer service is going to be a lot easier for us to get. Think about it. I don't have to look for my checkbook. I don't even know where my checkbook is. <laughs> I, I don't even have stamps. I got to go to the post office to buy stamps just to send in my, 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 my uh, pink envelope. So, you know, I think this is a really exciting opportunities, uh, you know, but it's going to take some time. There's a learning curve here, no matter how you cut it, that, you know, our expectations shouldn't be that I'm going to go at eight o'clock first day of license sales and, three minutes later, I've got my license and antlers application. You know, it, it doesn't work like that now with Huntfish PA and just buying a regular hunt license, but it works. And so we're going to work our way through those. We've still, uh, the board's got to approve what, you know, the process is finally going to look like. Um, but it's, you know, it's an exciting opportunity to move forward. Technology is never perfect, but it, you know, it often works better than sending it through the mail. So two questions from that. Um, you mentioned the rounds, right, for residents and then non-residents, and then yeah. residents get a, a second round after that. Um, are you still, is it still anticipated to do that sort of like allow residents first and then non-residents? Yeah, as it sits now, it, it's anticipated to really look like it does right now. You have a first round, second round, you have your non-residents, which are a different time, but 
it would start on the opening day of license sales. That's gotcha. really the big difference you would see. So anybody that's worried about, oh my gosh, the non-residents are coming in and buy them. No, it's going to be structured at least the way it's been discussed and proposed right now about like that. You know, I won't know until January when the commissioners actually meet. Um, but from a staff perspective, that's kind of what we're looking at. There's a couple other permutations of this that we're looking at as well. So it may be different. You know, when you're watching the commission meeting here in a few weeks to now, but kind of just giving you the insight of kind of what we're looking at and the way we're thinking about it. And then the other question you mentioned, you know, going to Walmart, going to a store to get it. Um, I buy my license online. Uh, mm -hmm. So would that it, I'm going to assume that's going, you know, the antlerless license will be like an option that I can pick um, right. before that checkout. Right. Exactly. Yep. Okay. You'll be able to go online and do that. Um, you know, one of the, the benefits of like the stores have almost a direct line in the Hunt Fish PA. Mm -hmm. So they don't, you know, when all the rest of us and myself included, I'm not going into Walmart. I love Walmart. I go to Walmart <laughs> all the time, but I'm not going for my hunt license. Um, I'm going to go online, you know, and, and first couple hours, it's probably, I'm probably not even going to apply for my uh, antlerless license till day two or three, let the rush get over. Even if I was buying at a store, no way I'm showing up first day for that. Cause I can't stand why I can't eat in the line. <laughs> cause I know they'll be there three days later and, and the crowds won't be bad. So, you know, I'm in no rush. They'll still be there. I'm not worried about it. Now, if you sold the second Turkey tag, yeah, I'm going to be there camped out three hours before the opener <laughs> just to make sure I can get it. Even though I've never used a second Turkey tag in my life. Yeah. That that's that second Turkey tag for me is like a, a guarantee that I'm not going to get a Turkey that year. Yep. That's pretty much how it's worked out for me. <laughs> All right. So more changes. Um, you know, bear season has been altered a little bit just because now there are more opportunities to pursue a bear. Uh, we have the, the archery season. We have the early muzzleloader season. We still have that rifle season. Um, is the bear harvest staying the same? Uh, because some reports from the rifle bear check stations are that there's not as many bears. Uh, is that just because they're being shot earlier in the season and the, the harvest is sort of staying where it's at? Well, it could be a combination of a lot of things. So if you look at bears, you know, the, the harvest numbers do fluctuate through time. So could it be, well, we had very limited mast uh, acorn crop in most of the state. And what does that affect does that have on black bears? A lot of times they'll den earlier. You know, they don't have the food resources. So if they don't have the food resources, it's more economical for them to go ahead and just take a nap and not necessarily be out. That's why we don't have a late, late season bear because they are uh, denned up. So that could be a factor. There's no doubt we've had some longer opportunities and there's more bears shot in that early season. No question about it. I think our harvest this year was down about 13% in black bears. Nothing to be concerned with. You know, we, it's the agency we purposely, because of the number of complaints and, you know, the, when we look at black bear populations, we could hold a lot more black bears in Pennsylvania than we currently do. The problem is, is what's the tolerance with people? So not only hunters, but, you know, the citizens of Pennsylvania who they, they all have voices on how we manage black bears, not just hunters. All citizens of Pennsylvania have a voice on how we manage that. And we saw, you know, continual dramatic increases in complaints with bears from property damage to you know, bears are doing all, I mean, what's a bear do? He knows how to get himself in trouble. Um, you know, you, you're dealing with a very smart animal that likes to eat and well, you're going to get trouble. So, you know, we're watching that closely. We have some research going on, look at harvest mortality on sows. So, you know, we continue to do the research and look at that. Nothing our bear biologists are worried about at this time, but they could change that next season or the season and or after. Um, so they are watching it and monitoring it and seeing how that goes. But overall, I mean, we have a very, very uh, robust bear population in Pennsylvania. Yeah, a lot of smart yogis out there grabbing at the picnic baskets, that's for sure. Uh, so, so we have Sunday hunting, three days. Uh, this is out of the Game Commission's control, but um, where are we at with Sunday hunting? Uh, are we going to have more days? Are we not? Like, how's how's the success been for Sunday hunting? Well, number one, success, the success or how has Sunday hunting gone in Pennsylvania? Without a hitch, it has gone very, very good. Um, it, we talked to hunters, we've done surveys. And in fact, when we looked at the surveys of what, why hunters reactivated into, into hunting, uh, which started in, in 2019s when we first started offering sunny hunting opportunities. Uh, the hunters that reactivated back into hunting, they identified actually two factors that uh, they felt were strongly associated with them getting back into hunter. And that was Saturday opener and Sunday hunting. 
So Sunday hunting is a big deal. Um, you know, I've been out in the field on patrol with our officers, uh, you know, talking to hunters on the ground. And I've had so many comments that, man, thank gosh we have Sunday hunting because I just wouldn't have had any other opportunity. I work Saturday and I work during the weekdays. This is the only day I got. So it, it's a big deal. Now, no doubt hunting is very light on a Sunday. And we see that in every other state. Uh, the state, and I've lived in a number of different states other than Pennsylvania, even though I'm from Pennsylvania. Um, Sunday hunting is always light. There's not near as many people out there. Um, you know, I used to, when I lived in South Carolina, I'd go to church in the morning and that afternoon I'd run out and my son and I go turkey hunting. That's, that's what we did. Um, so hunt, you know, a lot of hunting pressure was very light, especially in the mornings, but, uh, Sunday hunting has gone off without a hitch and it has been, it's been a blessing for us to be able to give that to hunters. And I'm hoping this next next legislative session, hopefully we can make some more progress with that. It's completely up to the legislature uh, as they are the ones that determine that, uh, not the game commission. We do not determine how many Sundays we get. We only get to determine which Sundays the, the ones that the legislature gives us that we can provide to hunters. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I'm someone who hunts uh, as many of those Sundays as I can. Uh, just because it, it's nice to be able to choose that day instead of Saturday if the conditions are, are you know, better on that day. Um, one of the last questions I have for you, I'm a hunter-trapper education instructor. Um, I, I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm the young guy <laughs> by many, many years in the group that, that I hunt. I go to the, the conferences that we have, um, you know, but early in the year. And again, I'm the young guy. Uh, what, what can we do and what has, uh, cause I'm thinking of something very specific. What has the game commission done to try to entice more people to give back as a volunteer and, um, instruct, you know, the youth become an instructor and instruct the, the next generation of hunters. Well, one of them was the bill by uh, Representative Gillespie um, for a free hunter, you know, for the uh, hunter safety educator hunting license, which was huge. Thank you, Representative Gillespie, for that gift. Um, you know, because our hunter and ed instructors, if you look at that force, that group of passionate individuals that are out there teaching our next generation, and that, and if you think about it, yeah, that we think of the hunter ed instructors as teaching folks how to hunt safely and get out in the field, and they get certified, they can buy a license. But it's so much more as a group. If you look at that group, every one of them I know and I interact with, they're taking other people hunting and they're interactive in their every single day activities of engaging with not only youth, but anybody who's new to hunting, they want to take out hunting. So you look at our army of hunter education instructors, you know, we wouldn't be as a hunting community anywhere where we are. We're number two in license sales in the country. We wouldn't be there without our hunter education instructors. You know, you mentioned, um, hunter ed instructors taking people out um, as we're recording this actually uh here in um well just over a week a, a gentleman that i met um older gentleman he's older than me uh that took the class uh he was came and talked to me because he the reason why he wanted to become uh wanted to be able to buy a hunting license was to be able to start taking his dog out upland hunting and he was asking me all kinds of questions and finally i just said why don't you come with me uh so in about a week he's uh, he's actually coming with me to hunt behind my dog to be able to sort of see how things go and and talk to me um you know about how i go about hunting a field for pheasants and things like that um you know there are a lot of you know it, yes we donate our 3 4 5 days a year uh of, of our time to instruct people that are interested in hunting, but then we're also doing a lot of other things to try to give back to the community as much as we can, as you mentioned, taking people out and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, what I was thinking about was that bill, um, that I didn't take advantage of it this year because I forgot my little hunter red card. Oh, we don't, <laughs> but, we don't, uh, we don't tell you guys about it. We want you to pay regular price. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was actually just talking to a coworker today that, um, because of that, my plan for next year, uh, just because, I, I really like the mission of the game commission, right? The conservation work that's done with licensed dollars uh, that come in uh, to the game commission. So, you know, okay, fine. I'm going to get a, a, a free, I put in quotes here because I have to pay the processing fee for that general hunting license. Um, that's, you know, 30 some dollars that I don't have to pay, which is great. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy a fur taker's license. I've never done that before. Um, that way I'm still spending the same amount of money. 
yeah. you know, that I normally would. Um, but um, now, you know, that gives me opportunities to maybe learn how to trap a little bit uh, from that same coworker or, you know, in February, you know, go after a bobcat, maybe something yeah, like that. Absolutely. Uh, Broaden your horizons. Cause I'll tell right. you what, I grew up as a trapper only because when I grew up, you had to be 12 to hunt. Um, it seems <laughs> ridiculous, but you did. Um, but I trapped and man, I love trapping and something I miss to this day. And I've always thought I'm going to get back into trapping, even if I just have to take off three or four days and go set a trap line somewhere. It's a lot of fun. I encourage anybody to try it out i may be trying here pretty soon uh, brian i want to be respectful of your time so i only have one more question for you and it is without a doubt the most important question of this whole thing which is why i waited to the end um are there mountain lions in pennsylvania okay so it's called the lear project so it's a breeding program between black bears and lions, and they're called leers. That way they don't scratch up all the trees, and they eat all the deer. Now, I know you're not recording this right now, so we've got to keep this really, really quiet. All right, okay. now what's your question? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here, let me get – it's actually a really good question. So is it possible that a mountain lion could be in Pennsylvania, a wild mountain lion, not somebody's pet that got out? Yes, it is possible, and here's why it's impossible. Mountain lions can walk a long way. It wasn't that many years ago up in Connecticut, they found a mountain lion that was killed on the highway. Uh, and they looked at, you know, when they were collecting, you know, when mountain lions show up, people notice. Mm -hmm. So they collected DNA and they were able to track this thing all the way back to South Dakota. South Dakota, we all know, is quite a little bit of a hike away. But mountain lions have huge home ranges and they can wander. I mean, they can get up and go and that's kind of not abnormal. Is it possible that a mountain lion could be in Pennsylvania? Yes. Is it probable? Absolutely not. We're the most, one of the most roaded states in the Eastern United States. Now I've turkey hunted out West and where there were mountain lions, I knew there were mountain lions. One of the reasons mountain lions can live in that part of the world, because there are no roads. Uh, you know, the, the likelihood of getting hit on a road out in some of these big wilderness areas is just very low. Here in Pennsylvania, you've got a road behind every tree. I know that because I have a turkey dog that all I do is worry about where the next road is, because if he gets on birds, guess what? He ain't slowing down. So I got to stay quite away from, uh, from, from roads. So roads are a serious issue. Do we have a breeding population of mountain lions in Pennsylvania? No. I know about it. it. There's absolutely no breeding population. There's a difference. So could one travel through Pennsylvania? Is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? Absolutely not. Are there a breeding population of mountain lions? No. Is there a breeding population of leers? Man, they're everywhere behind every tree. <laughs> so I have a follow-up question. Um, did it ever happen? Uh, Cause I've heard this story quite a number of times that um, uh, a hunter, a concerned citizen and, and hunter came into a game commission meeting with a mountain lion on his back that he had killed and he threw it down on the table. Uh, did that ever happen? I have never heard that before. That's the first time I heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, Brian, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to be on the lookout for these leers that are out there. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's not said often enough um, because everyone wants the hunting seasons and regulations to, to fit their personal uh, situation to a T and that's not possible whenever you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of hunters out there for the game commission to do. So it's not said enough, but I want to thank you and the game commission for, uh, working to, uh, advance conservation in the state, working to advance opportunities for hunters and try to get the most for everyone that you possibly can. Well, I, I want to thank you. And, and on behalf of the Pennsylvania game commission and our board of commissioners, we are, and I say, say this with every bit of my heart, we are humbled by the privilege to work for this agency and to serve the citizens of Pennsylvania and conserve the natural resources here, wildlife resources in Pennsylvania. It's a true honor. We are passionate about it. We live it every day. Um, so thank you so much, man. Anytime you want to talk about conservation, let me know. I'll be hitting you up very shortly. <laughs> that'll do it for another episode here. And uh, I appreciate Brian coming back on. Uh, we're looking to make this a yearly thing with Brian. So we get a little state of the union style uh, episode at the beginning of every year. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the, the conversations I have with him. Uh, he, he's very open and honest uh, about how things are working within the PGC and what the PGC has to offer. Uh, what they, you know, are looking forward to as far as, you know, new ways to uh, accomplish their mission. 
and Rawal is one of them. Uh, the Recovering American America's Wildlife Act. Um, you know, unfortunately, we're gonna have to restart that whole process of getting that bill through. Uh, but hopefully, this year we can get it through because that is just you know extra funding that state agencies like the Pennsylvania Game Commission can use on vulnerable species, and that's gonna benefit everyone. You know, um, when it comes to things like you know the the freak snowstorm that happened uh, in October uh, that toppled some nets in the Southwest game farm for the pheasants, you know, that, that's one of those things that no one can control. So, sometimes things just happen. And um, it was nice to hear that the game commission was able to make that right by, you know, replacing the estimated lost birds. And, um, you know, things are changing. Everyone knows this, that that's a hunter in Pennsylvania. Uh, or hunts in Pennsylvania. We know things are changing. We no longer have the pink envelopes for, for this upcoming year. And um, not everyone's happy with the changes, but you know what? Changes change. And, you know, that is the only thing that stays the same is change. So sometimes, you know, we need to look at these as with less of the uh, how will this affect me glasses on and more with the how will this affect everyone and maybe hopefully increase participation in our chosen activity that we love. As a hunter ed instructor, please, if you have any interest in giving back to the next generation uh, of hunters, please do the application, start the process. We need you, especially if you're younger, we need you. Um, you know, I'm, I go to these conferences uh, you know, once a year and I am the youngest person there by 20 years and I'm in my 30s. Uh, we need new young blood to take over for the old guard. The old guard did great work for a long time, and it's time for them to relax. So it's time for this new young guard to take over. Um, so please help out with that. And as I mentioned, if you stayed to the end, you heard about that new program, the Lear program from the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Another reason why I love Brian, being able to joke about some things, um, you know, it's just, it, it's nice to be able to, to see some of that uh, personality, especially his personality, come through, um, you know, whenever it's someone in, in such a high profile position. Thank you again, everyone, for joining me. Until the next episode, get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild.